Welcome to Social Minute, podcast that looks at social network minute by minute. Today we're going to be covering the anti-penultimate minute of the film, minute 118. It goes from an hour 57 to an hour 57.59. And we are starting off with a bunch of accountants and payroll. Then we go through the foreman and the set designers. Um, and then we have a bunch of assistants. Uh, everybody got an assistant. David Fincher got an assistant, Mr. Rudin got three assistants, uh, Mr. DeLuca got an assistant, Mr. Sorkin got an assistant, and then there were a bunch of production assistants. And then we go through catering, uh, and then we move on to the Boston unit. Uh, they did shoot in Boston, they did not shoot um, anywhere near Harvard, because they didn't allow them to shoot at Harvard. Uh, we finish off with the Henley unit, uh, and then we start some of the we have some of the, the rowing credits, uh, and then we go into post-production. Uh, of course, uh, post-sound services were provided by Skywalker Sound um, at Marion County. Uh, David Fincher, of course, famously started his career um, working on model shots at Return of the Jedi, I think. Um, so it makes sense for him to go back to Skywalker to do some sound. Um, and then we have a bunch of editors, and that is where our minute finishes and joining me to talk about today is Richard Burns. Hello Richard. Hi Darren. Yeah so we're kind of deep into all of the technical credits um, you know we finish off with the Foley artists, dialogue editors um, but uh, you know I, I think this is probably a good time uh, as any to kind of talk about uh, you know David Fincher. Uh, I don't want to jump to the end but normally my question uh, for a Wednesday is about other David Fincher films um, and so I think this is probably, I mean, if you want, we can talk about the Foley artists and the, uh, the, the lead foreman, but uh, I don't know how much is there is to be gained <laughs> for talking about um, those particular credits. Yeah, I don't recall the specific Foley. Um, obviously, you know, the, the dialogue editors and, and everyone who handled the, you know, the actual uh, recording and production of the script, like that's, they did an incredible job in this movie. The, you know, the the first scene of the overlapping dialogue where they're sort of alternating um mark is discussing you know the the his his path forward through final club and um what he sees for his life and erica's kind of off off rhythm and she's always responding to the the previous thing he's his she's two lines behind she's trying to respond to him and he's already moved on i mean that's the the editing on that is and the the way the dialogue is is clear and there's you know background um the background sound of the bar is you know wonderfully placed like it's very present but you can hear their dialogue and it's you know with with any david fincher movie every everyone is impeccable like he you know obviously asks if he's you know famous for asking for 50 takes from his actors but i think he probably demands you know equal commitment from his technicians and it it shows like it's his movies are always yeah they're impeccably like produced and the dialogue especially in this one this work in script i mean it's it's very well handled it's you know very like obviously dialogue forward but um all the lines that are supposed to land land well and are, are well well placed and well well handled in terms of the impact they're given and the the way they sound and the way they're they're delivered and captured so yeah i mean the sound technicians and dialogue uh, technicians did a did a great job i mean you know not to dismiss the work of the peoples whose names are are going by 
Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's not, not really that I can talk that much about what the construction coordinator is doing and how it impacts on the film or anything like that. But yeah, like, you know, this is a film which if you watch the behind the scenes stuff that's uh, on the DVD, I'm going to assume it's on the Blu-ray. Um, you know, every single department was kind of working to make sure that, you know, what we're getting on screen is as accurate as it possibly could be. Like I said, they weren't they shot in Boston, but they weren't allowed to shoot anywhere near Harvard. Um, so they used like you know other buildings on other kind of nearby university campuses uh, to kind of stand in for um, you know Harvard, um, and I think they kind of did a good job of um, kind of depicting certainly the beginning of the film, obviously the kind of you know university life, and then by the end you know once we get to the kind of you know the Facebook HQ and everything, they I feel like they did a really good job of showing kind of the Silicon Valley, um, you know. Uh, kind of the way that stuff is done there um, which I think is interesting because obviously since this film came out I feel like a lot of people have become more familiar with uh, the kind of tech bros of Silicon Valley and so this film kind of in some ways feels a little bit quaint because you know these are obviously kind of teenagers um, going out to Silicon Valley and I think most of the kind of tech bros these days are kind of you know newly out of university so um, you know, they're a few years older than anybody kind of who was in Facebook. I guess they're all kind of meant to be roughly the same age as Sean Parker was um, in the film. You know, so it's kind of interesting that, you know, the film is mostly kind of like teenagers starting this tech company and becoming really big. Um, you know, whereas, you know, most things that we think about associated with Silicon Valley, in particular, the TV show Silicon Valley, um, you know the kind of insanity of um you know those those kind of corporations and you know uh, i mean in the news kind of most recently we had WeWork, uh, which i will stress is not a technology company um but they carried themselves like a technology company you know with the kind of you know an outrageous ceo who kind of spent money like it was going out of fashion um of course now he's got a few billions so he can literally spend it like it's going out of fashion but like the way he acted was as if he he'd seen something you know kind of you know within a kind of silicon valley setting and he wanted to kind of emulate that um so i think we're, we're all kind of a bit more familiar with that these days um and kind of what that brings um you know so it, it's kind of interesting that this film seems a little bit more quaint like the idea of you know getting an angel investment from you know, a couple of firms and then kind of like having a, you know, million member part, you know, that kind of stuff seems a little bit more quaint when you compare that with, you know, the antics of something like WeWork where, uh, you know, the guy was, I don't know, handing out tequila shots and then firing people at the same day. It's like, you know, it just it just feels like there's a kind of, uh, you know, a mentality from Silicon Valley that I, I, I feel like everyone's kind of acquainted with these days, um, you know, whereas this film seems a little bit just slightly before that. Yeah, and it might you know, it might just be that Aaron Sorkin, you know, doesn't he understands kind of an an earlier idea of um, corporate corporate behavior and and corporate structure and and you know this was obviously kind of the start of that and then we've had you know a decade and a half of tech startups kind of shaping you know the paradigm of how a corporation looks and acts and how a CEO is looks and acts and that's kind of you know it's it's gotten more outrageous and kind of more codified in that time i feel like uh, you know the kind of you know the former ceo of WeWork or the former ceo of uber or the former ceo of a number of other tech firms where people have eventually realized the guy you know acting like a dickhead is the one who shouldn't be leading a billion dollar company i feel like they are the kind of people who would hand out 
business card saying I'm CEO bitch. Uh, whereas I feel like you know the the kind of uh, the Mark Zuckerberg depicted in this film would maybe have come to his senses and realised that while that was a fun thing to say between two friends in a nightclub, you can't realistically conduct business by handing out a business card to say I'm CEO bitch. Um, so you know it it feels like you know that that is kind of the difference between you know the, the kind of time period depicted here and you know a lot of the kind of tech companies today. Um, is they probably wouldn't have second thoughts about handing those business cards out, um, you know. Uh, whereas obviously, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is merely a robot, so he doesn't need to hand out business cards. <laughs> also, if if you're the head of Facebook, do, like, do you walk into a room and people are like, "Oh, I need that guy's business card." I don't. Yeah, who is that guy? I feel like I've seen him in front of Congress. So I feel like I know who that is, but I should get a business card just to be sure. Oh, yeah, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, CEO of Facebook. Oh, I didn't realize. You know, everybody obviously working behind the camera. Like you say, that opening scene, uh, if you watch the behind the scenes, you see that, like, on set it is deadly silent, and it's just those two actors talking to each other. So all the kind of Foley work and everything is, is kind of perfect. Uh, and like you say, you know, a number of takes. They did 99 in all um, of that opening scene. Um, so that's not that's not the whole scene beginning to end. That's different takes of different parts of the scene. So each each actor had a number of different takes on certain lines right. and stuff. But overall, it came to ninety nine from that first scene. Um, you know, which uh, there's a there's a very funny thing on the um, uh, the Gone Girl commentary where David Fincher talks about how people criticize him for doing a number of takes. Um, and there's a scene where a car pulls up outside a house, uh, which is um, uh, Neil Patrick Harris is in the car. He pulls it up outside the house, gets out, walks straight into the house, and it's all one shot. Um, and David Fincher on the commentary, he goes, that was one f- take. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, he goes, I, he goes, we didn't do hundreds, we did one. <laughs> and so he, he knows his reputation. And I think that's kind of funny that like, you know, he on the on a director's commentary. And by the way, I should say to any anyone who owns any like David Fincher films, by all means, listen to the director's commentary because he is a charming man to kind of listen to. He like he really gets into you know his decisions be- behind kind of each scene and you know the certain takes that he did and you know what characters are doing and you know he's very kind of he knows he really knows his craft. Unsurprisingly, for a guy who's made um, you know this many really good films, he he understands what he's doing. Um, and so like his commentaries are always kind of interesting even if it's just him by himself the one on Fight Club is probably my favourite commentary because it's him, Brad Pitt and Edward Norton and Brad Pitt is a delight on any director's commentaries like um, even even on like Ocean's Eleven he's you know there's a commentary with just Brad Pitt and a bunch of the actors and he's constantly like corralling them and telling them to you know talk about this scene or like he's he's kind of like it's really kind of fun to listen to him kind of take charge um and there's a there's a lot of stuff on the fight club commentary between the, the, those three guys that's really kind of fun um even from edward norton a man you know not known for having fun yeah not known for being a particularly uh having a good sense of humor about himself in his work um but yeah even though yeah. Dave, you know david fincher makes such like violent and sort of disturbing movies at times he's a very like yeah he's a very charming and kind of like funny guy and so yeah, he's he's very yeah he's he's very fun to listen to talk about his craft and his movies because he's he's very uh yeah very knowledgeable and very just like kind of pithy you know he's got a classic quote where he says there's there's usually only two or three or there's only two ways to shoot a scene and the other way's wrong yeah <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah and there are a number of like um, YouTube essays and stuff which I think I've I've kind of brought up you know throughout this. Um, by various different channels. I can't remember the name of all of them, but um, I think one of them is titled something like um, How David Fincher Hijacks Your Eyes. Yep. 
uh, and another one's like um, you know uh, the David Fincher way and why everyone else is wrong um, and you know they they kind of get really get into how he kind of moves the camera and you know the fact that like most of like most of the kind of dialogue scenes in his films you could kind of mute them and you could still tell like who the person is who's in control and who's got the conversation and who's kind of the most important just from like the way that where the edits are and where the camera is placed and the different kind of eye lines and stuff um and it's it's weird because it's kind of it feels effortless in his films and you know then when you go to the cinema and you see other films where it is completely incomprehensible <laughs> in terms of like the editing and you know the dialogue stuff doesn't make any sense and character motivation has no kind of place like it's kind of weird when you go back to watch david fincher films which i do uh, these days once a year around christmas uh, and i title it finchmas <laughs> um and i go through all of his films one by one and rewatch them all again um and it's kind of like you know his early few films where he didn't have as much creative control you can kind of see that he occasionally has to do something that he feels like it's from you know the studio's directive or a producer's directive uh, but since Zodiac, he's obviously had full creative control. And, you know, I think everything since Zodiac has kind of been, you know, a masterpiece. I'd argue that Seven is a great film. Obviously, I spent seven episodes uh, talking about it earlier in this podcast uh, as a bonus. Um, and, like, all the choices in that film are kind of are really great. Uh, but there's a few things which kind of, like, don't fully feel like they make sense. But I think that's mostly down to the kind of script. I think everything that's shot kind of makes sense in terms of, like, the internal logic of the film. Um, but there are a few kind of things that kind of stand out. Whereas, you know, I think everything, I would even argue everything since the game, he's had full creative control and he's been able to do whatever he wanted. And it kind of, you know, it, when you see somebody who has the ability to do whatever they want and they also know what they want to do, uh, because obviously there are artists out there who have the ability to do whatever they want, um, but they are also awful at doing it. So, you know, that's how you end up with like a Neil Breen, um, you know, who has you know, infinite resources and full creative control and knows how to do nothing. <laughs> uh, whereas, you know, David Fincher has full creative control and it shows that he is a master of the craft. Like he's somebody who really understands what he wants to do. Um, and, you know, so let's get your opinions on other David Fincher films. Obviously, you know, we've kind of mentioned a couple, but, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, his back catalogue? Yeah, um, I have seen them all, except that I, I have not seen The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And, and I intend to, you know, I or just haven't. But I think he's, um, yeah, I mean, he's he's a master of just, yeah, both those essays, uh, those video essays that you called out are really, really educational and really interesting to watch because you do see how, because a lot of people, you know, imitate him, but they usually only, you know, they get like the, the sickly green cinematography and then nothing else that, the way his cameras are always it's always motivated movement so you know someone is moving in the room or picking something up and the camera identifies it and highlights it but it's very subtle and you know never um never overly like bombastic or calling attention to to anything um zodiac is probably my favorite of his i just feel like it's unimpeachable and you know he's a uh, one thing that was interesting um is that I saw that the script for this, um, obviously Sorkin, kind of a verbose screenwriter, and uh, it was 164 pages, and typically you expect, you know, a, a minute of screen time per page, and obviously this, this film is, you know, has, at this point, the script has ended uh, a couple minutes ago, so it comes in under 
under two hours for a 160 page script um and he does he makes you know a lot of his movies are not they're these kind of zodiac's kind of like an epic it spans you know 20 or 30 years i think um but it's just he holds your attention the whole way through because it's just this this very like steady efficient building of tension and the way he fits little like masterful little mini horror movies like the scene where jake gyllenhaal is in the basement in zodiac or the different chases with john doe from seven just these these individual sequences that are on their own just these these wonderful little sequences and then they they don't you know they don't disrupt the the flow of the movie or feel out of place um and yeah i do i think your timeline of when he gains kind of complete control probably seven feels already like a complete like david fincher movie but coming off of alien three you know you assume that he probably had to struggle with the studio somewhat um i know he I think had to argue for the way the killer's identity was handled in the marketing. Cause I, I'm, I think that possibly the studio wanted to advertise that Kevin Spacey was in the movie and he had to convince them not to. I don't recall. Um, Kevin Spacey made the choice to take his name off it mostly because he was sick and tired of promoting the usual suspects. And he basically been on junkets for like a whole year right. and he didn't want to keep doing that for like another three months. <laughs> so he, he said, take my name off it. And David Fincher had pitched that as an idea as well. And they both kind of agreed. And so, you know, the studio kind of came around to that. And also, you know, um, Kevin Spacey and um, Brad Pitt, um, and I think even Morgan Freeman, they all fighted for the the ending to have the head in the box, whereas the studio wanted to be well, they wanted to be a dog instead. They wanted to be one of the dogs that was in the box, and Tracy was still alive, and that's the ending that apparently they'd forced the they'd forced a Andrew Kevin Walker to rewrite. And David Fincher got the wrong copy of the script. He got the original copy that had the head in the box, and. Once he'd read that, he was like, you know, Andrew Kevin Walker was like, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to have to change the ending. And he was like, no, 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 I'm doing this film, now, but we've got to keep that ending. So, yeah. you know, he fortunately had the actors kind of behind him to say, yes, we need to do that. Um, so he was able to keep that. Um, Nerd Writer One is the person who did the essay, How David Fincher Hijacks Your Eyes. Um, and that's definitely worth watching. Uh, it's only like five minutes, but it's it's so kind of, um, you know, so kind of great. If you, In fact, if you just go onto YouTube and just Google google on youtube search sorry yeah <laughs> i'm sure google won't and i think that. every if you just search for david fincher you'll find tons of different essays there's another one called invisible details which is a great one and and the, the uh, every every the frame of painting and... does the um the other way is wrong essay um and every frame of painting is yeah. is a wonderful uh now now defunct video series but yeah that's a that's a really good one yeah yeah there well i mean you know just the way that he like I mean, you know, I, I feel like some people, like Gone Girl was kind of like, a, you know, a kind of trashy novel that I don't think people were, people were kind of questioning why David Fincher was adapting that into the film, um, you know, because it kind of felt, and, and the thing is as well, there have been other kind of films that have kind of been done off books that were sort of Gone Girl-ish kind of like rip-offs, and they haven't worked in the same way that Gone Girl worked as a film, because you know, in Gone Girl, for David Fincher, it's not like the the kind of big twist or the kind of like trashy kind of like origins of the of the 
the story that are kind of the the drawing thing it's it's the characters and it's you know ben affleck and uh carrie coon and and you know um i'm trying to remember the the person who actually plays, plays Pike. The, the main character Rosamund Pike, yes. It's it's them that it's those kind of those kind of uh, the characters that interest him, not the fact that you have the kind of twist halfway through and all that kind of stuff. Like it's it's more about like the kind of their lives and you know um, all the kind of uh, you know the kind of flashbacks and stuff that are in the kind of diaries and everything. It, the way he kind of frames them and you know the voiceover doesn't feel like it's kind of you know a voiceover normally feels like a kind of a crutch, uh, particularly when adapting novels that have like a lot of kind of internal stuff. It just feels like you're just taking the novel and having somebody read it on screen, um, but it never felt like that with Gone Girl. Like Gone Girl felt like something completely different to that. Um, so you know, I mean, we're now in a bigger gap than we were between Panic Room and Zodiac since Gone Girl came out. So I'm hoping at some point that David Fincher in the very near future gets back to releasing stuff at the cinema. As interesting as his TV stuff has been in the last couple of years, um, you know, I just you know. I want to. I want to go back to the cinema and see a David Fincher film. It's it's been quite a few years now. Yeah, I mean um, he he's you know still still bandied around World War World War Z two. I kind of hope that's not what he ends up making next. But I think they've given up on that completely at this point. Yeah. Um. I th- in fact I don't know who I don't know who owns World War Z. Um. Uh, if it's Fox, then it's definitely dead now. Mm. Um. But, but that's a good uh, point. Yeah. So I. I just I, I just want to see him kind of get back to doing something in the cinema. Whatever it is, you know, I, I, at this point, I really, like, the subject doesn't really matter to me. It's just, like, I just want another, you know, almost every single David Fincher film, when it's announced, I'm like, why is he doing that? And then when you see it, you're like, of course, that's why he did it. <laughs> so it, it kind of, you know, even Benjamin Button, which, you know, I've been a, a staunch defender of throughout the, the run of this podcast, um, if only because I think, you know, there's a really strong kind of, I mean, I think at like almost three hours, it's a little bit long. Um, but there's a there's a series of vignettes in that film that I think are really kind of some of the best stuff that David Fincher has done. And I, I think he really kind of takes, he takes like what was, I don't know, like, like a, a 10 page short story and, <laughs> and ends up with a three hour film. <laughs> Um, but that kind of fits, I think, with what you know—the fact that David Fincher really—it is a like it's a—it's a character study about a character who effectively isn't really the hero of his own kind of story. You know, all the people around him, the kind of people he meets, those are the kind of um, the kind of more interesting characters and stuff in that film. And you know, I think again, like the technological stuff kind of helped because then when he got to the Social Minute, he was able to do the Winklevoss twins without any issues and. You know, I think that's one of the things that would have been like if he'd have had to settle for a different actor because they were just a pair of twins. I think that might have been one of the things that could have brought this film down. Whereas using the technology to be like, oh well, you know, I don't need to hire twins. I can just hire one guy yeah. and, and duplicate him. Um, I think that's probably one of the kind of the strong things about this film is like David Finch is like, oh, I've got a solution now technologically that means I can, I can kind of, you know, I can do this. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's interesting because with each film, it feels like he's, you know, like uh, all the different guests that I've talked about, you know, they've named different films that are their favorites. You know, a lot of people say Zodiac, a lot of people say seven, um, a few people have said this film, um, you know, and I think it's kind of interesting because I don't, you know, I would say aside from Panic Room, which is not my favorite, you know, uh, unless of course, you know, you want to see, um, what's his face? Uh, get killed Jared Leto uh, the Joker who wasn't any good yeah Jared Leto unless you want to see Jared Leto getting shot then you know Panic Room is it's kind of like an anomaly in his, his, his kind of catalogue 
Um, but I think everything else uh, has kind of got like a confidence to it where it's like, this is clearly somebody who, you know, is probably, you know, one of the great directors, like, you know, and and I think I think not enough people kind of, when talking about directors, I don't think enough people kind of mention him. Yeah, um, I mean, you know. because I, uh, and I mean, you know, Alien 3 is probably in terms of quality, the biggest outlier, but that's tough to fault him for. I mean, he did, that's, he absolutely had, you know, very little control over like, getting that to come out the way he wanted but um they fired him three times yeah so <laughs> so yeah not a not a ton of control there um yeah but uh yeah. yeah i've seen i think i've seen the game and um panic room i've seen panic room the least of the ones i've seen i've even seen alien 3 more than i've seen panic room i think i saw that i wouldn't have seen it in the movie in the theaters because that was was that 97 or 99 um which one? Uh, panic room that was ninety seven. Pa- Panic Room was two thousand and two. Oh my god! Well, I don't I don't remember the timeline of his career at all. Oh yeah, because the game is the game is like ninety seven or ninety eight. Nineteen ninety seven. Tenth of October nineteen ninety seven was when I saw the game at the cinema. Okay, and then yeah, and then of course Fight Club. Oh, we didn't even mention Fight Club. Fight Club's good, but is sort of at yeah. this point. Um, I need to. I need to. Walk. I I, f- I feel like Fight Club now has this weird kind of reputation where people are like, Fight Club's a great film, but and it's like I don't. F- I think you can live without the but. I yeah, like, yeah. Okay, you know, people people are idiots and they don't understand the film. Well, you know, you can say that about pretty much every single film. You know, there are people out there who are like, you know, saying that Thanos was right. Yes. So yeah. you know, people people are dumb, uh, and I'm not going to let them bring down the fact that Fight Club is you know a, a masterful exercise in you know filmmaking. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know. Um. I think yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it, I, I think at this point, I've possibly outgrown a little bit of the actual content of Fight Club. You know, outside of understanding it as satire or not, some of the kind of snarky, um, you know, like uh, I don't know, sort of like weak capital critiques of capitalism, where it it is sort of some of it is just legitimately a little outside my taste at this point. Um, but it is it is a wonderful like it's completely engaging. As like so many frames of it are just like kind of fantastically composed and fun to watch like it's it's still it's a great movie it's just um it wouldn't be my favorite and i said zodiac but as soon as i said that i remembered literally the one we're talking about which the social network is like very very near also i think you called it you called the movie the social minute so i think you're in too deep so I think this is ending. Oh yes, <laughs> I think this is ending at the right time. <laughs> you gotta get out, man. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 so near a perfect movie. I mean, it's just no minute is no moment is wasted, and it's so compelling. Like you know, I watch it the way like you watch like you know you think of movies that you rewatch over and over again as like kind of popcorn movies like you know, the dark Knight or whatever, but like, I, I watch the social network all the time. Like I'm always in the mood to watch it. Cause it's just, it grabs you and just, it's entertaining the whole way through. Like it's, it's a great movie. So it might be my favorite. I'm not, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I could pick one ultimately. <laughs> well, I mean, you do also have like that wonderful moment where Andrew Garfield is just yelling and he goes like, uh, you know, big fish, eat little fish, the Marlin and the Trent, like, <laughs> And and it like it doesn't make any sense like out of context to some of the people who are in the room. So like you know one of the roommates is like, what is he talking about? Um, so like there's stuff like that that's kind of funny. And then there's just like you know it is like ultimately the social um, the social network is like kind of like his silliest film because it's just 
about people bickering over a website. Yes, <laughs> like that's yeah. the whole kind of film. And yet he gives it a certain air of gravitas that it kind of almost doesn't deserve. And it's it's kind of interesting that he manages to do that. And I think that's that's what's kind of, you know, successful about, um, you know, uh, I would say kind of curious case of Benjamin Button and Girl with Dragon Tattoo and Gone Girl. Like, the source material for those films is not as serious as the film that we end up with. And, you know, like... Gone Girl is kind of like this this kind of trashy thriller, and it ends up being something completely different. And you know, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo is um, well. Let's put it like this: I've read those three books, and there's there's a chapter in I think the third book where um, the author, whose name escapes me at this point, um, the late author, should I say, he he spends three pages describing different models of Ericsson mobile phones, and you're like. I, <laughs> so the fact that David Fincher and others have managed to kind of take that material and turn it into kind of compelling films um, is is kind of at least notable, um, you know. And I think it's interesting, actually, that the fact that he has kind of, you know, with Fight Club um, and then obviously the last kind of three films that he's done, um, and even this film as well, he's reached this weird kind of thing where he seems to be doing, like, adaptations of other materials rather than, like, stuff that's based on original stuff like, um, you know, Panic Room or The Game. Um, right. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of interesting, like, the choices that he's made. But like you say, yeah, they keep bandying around this World War Z2 thing, and I think at this point they've kind of given up on that. Um, so, you know, I'm just interested in seeing whatever he does next and, you know, and after that as well, you know, like... Uh, yeah, I'm talking as if David Fincher is kind of like in his 90s or something, you know, like he's he's still got plenty of his career to go. But it's, you know, I just kind of I'm impatient for him to kind of do something else, you know, and kind of get back to the cinema. Well, and I do I do think he's spoken about having difficulty um, with the, the changing like landscape because he makes, you know, he makes I, I, you know, I can't I can't recall the budgets of each of his films, but he tends to kind of be in that like that $40 million to like $70 million like budget that we talk about people not making anymore. And so I do think, I think that's why he's, he's in, you know, during the production of this like season of Mindhunter, I think people asked him about, you know, your, his next movie. And he would just say it's, it's easier for him to make a series right now. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I would, I would love to get another theatrical Fincher film. So, you know, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm hoping we get one and I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever it is, but um, and I'm excited I still have Benjamin Button to uh, to look forward to because it's one I haven't seen. And this year I will definitely be rewatching everything again. Generally, I only listen to I only watch Alien Three with the direct with the kind of actors directors commentary on there. Um, it's very rare I'll just watch Alien Three because uh, you know it's I I mean if David Fincher has decided that's not the film he wanted to make then I don't I don't feel the need to include it in my list of David Fincher films. Right. Um, so anyway, let us go to plugs. Is there anything that you wish to plug, Richard? Sure, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Richard Burns, and uh, that's M. That's just M R Richard Burns. But I don't tweet, so it doesn't matter. And you can find us on MySpace at myspace.com/socialminute on Twitter at social underscore minute or on Facebook at social minute podcast. Thanks for being my guest here today, Richard. Thanks for having me. And otherwise, goodbye. Mm-hmm.